for the week of January 3rd, 2021. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 523, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. Happy New Year, Sperling. And to all our listeners here and overseas. Yes, Happy New Year. That It is the one holiday where, for the most part, everybody celebrates it. Because, oh. you know, it's a calendar thing. Fair enough. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, you're getting ready to vote, of course, down in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. No, no, that's in Georgia. But that's all kind of like the same, right? I mean, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, we just kind of like lump them all together down there, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have now just offended. Look, we're five minutes into the first show of the year. I've already offended half, half the United States. I, I, well, 13 slave states, but I turned over a new leaf. You know, I, I, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to argue. People don't realize outside the show. I don't fight. I don't argue. I only argue with you. And I'm not going to you know this year. I'm going to be calm, accommodating, inquisitive, perhaps. But I'm not here to debate and yell. I just want to hear and listen and learn. Well, well, here's the thing. Something I learned from you was that apparently I should be checking my email more often. And it <laughs> is it is something that you give me uh, a lot of grief for on a regular basis. Now I have personal email. I have showbiz sandbox email. I have celluloid junkie email. I have Covergent email. Covergent is the consulting firm that uh, I'm a partner in. And, That's and where the real money is. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. Uh, you must get a lot, make a lot of money with that many emails. I, I don't give you grief. I feel bad. You really need to purge because you have like literally tens of thousands of emails. Uh, well, so here's what I did. Uh, as the Christmas break started, mm-hmm. I looked. I had 79,000 emails. Unlooked at. Unlooked at. Uh, you, some were looked at. Most weren't. Some oh, of these date oh. back to 2014. Okay. Erase everything from before September. It can't matter. If it mattered, they will have sent you another email. By the way, you email me. I like never respond uh, to you. Never. Oh God. I'm like, so why does he annoying. keep emailing? I've got hundreds upon hundreds of emails I from Michael. You and you never respond. I call <laughs> you and you never respond. What am I, your wife? <laughs> so, you know, by the way, did you know my kids had a Christmas con- a Gazoom Christmas concert this year? I, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, no. So, I, so I didn't found an I, email. I found more than a few emails, but one specifically I wanted to call attention to because I felt so bad when I ran across this email. I was like, how did I miss this email? And it's from Raul Burrell, one of our longtime listeners. We right, have, right. It, took, it, it took a while. We now know how you missed it. You have 79,000 unread emails and you yeah, refuse yes. to just get rid of them all and just start fresh. But anyway, so what did but, Raul say? What did he write about? Uh, well, he, he writes, hi, Michael and Sperling just wanted hey. to let you, yeah, he just wanted to let us know that he said we inspired him to start his own podcast. So oh, like, oh no. When this was like, when 2018, <laughs> oh, no, no. an awful person. When- <laughs> no, no. Thankfully it was only August 12th, 2020. Okay? Oh, well, that's, that's awesome. I mean, everybody should have their own podcast. That's kind of a joke, but no, it's a, it's a great way to reach people. It's a great way to promote yourself and talk about some specialized thing you're interested in. I can't wait to hear it. What's it about, Spro? Well, uh, it is, it's about the industry. He says he recruited uh, some friends from box office profits. And oh, wait, he's, they, he's a competitor now? No, oh, now yeah. I'm not so excited. Now, forget <laughs> it. <laughs> now he's 
<laughs> you inspired you because you guys suck, and I knew I could do a better job. <laughs> what's, it, what's it called? Uh, well, it is called. Um, it's funny that you should met. It's called Streaming into the Void. So he even has a better name than us. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I like your name. I like your name. Um, so he says he talks about streaming video, of course, streaming into the void. Uh, they this past week, which by the way was back in August. Now, in my defense, I was out for that week. August there is 12. no, there is you were out for the week. There is no defense. There is no defense. <laughs> um, so and they that particular week, uh, Raul and 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 the gang were, were covering Disney's quarterly report and the Mulan news, uh, in our in, in their latest episode. So that should tell you how long ago this is. Not only can you watch Mulan on Disney Plus without paying the extra $30 now? But you can also watch Soul. Oh, that, that's true. Well, congrats to them. They're on episode 24, uh, January 4th, 2021. Uh, and it's, they're talking about, uh, what are they talking about here? They're talking about uh, Old Lang's, oh, the crystal ball for 2021. What's going to happen with streaming? Uh, I look forward to checking it out. And I hope you guys do too. And when you do and you check it out, then you can rate and review it. I'm going to do that for him right now while we're talking. That's how easy it is to do. Oh, my God. I love it. I'm going to give it five stars, and uh, I'm going to put a comment later Wait a on. Wait You I... haven't listened to it yet. Uh, that's okay. He's a friend of the show. He's taken the time over the years to come to our show. I'm happy to rate and review. The first people to rate and review it are always your friends and people that you convinced to go on there. That's normal. That's okay. And that's awesome. That's great. Yes. Well, Great we will you. place links to Raul Burial's uh, uh, podcast, Streaming Into the Void, in our show notes for this week. Terrific. Close to six months late. <laughs> <laughs> five stars. It took me five seconds to do that. All you got to do is go to your iTunes app. You call up that show, slide to the bottom, and, and it pops up. But there you are. There's a way to rate and review it. And you just, uh, boom, hit five stars. And then once I've heard the show and have some comments to make, I'll go and leave a few words, which is even more powerful. It really helps. Please do it for Raul and do it for us. Yeah, you know, uh, he wrote to dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Now, one thing I do check every single week is our voicemail at 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. And I've got to be honest with you, Michael, I have yet to learn and become fluent in fax machine, which is apparently one of the few the few uh Phone, you know, phone calls we get are uh, predominantly from fax machines. We'll get like one listener call to 10. <laughs> there are I'm still like, fax I, machines in the world. That's fact. There must be some scam involved in that because otherwise, why would anybody still send a fax to random numbers? Yeah. Well, or, or, either oh, that you know, or, it is it's advertising or it's something spitting it out. Yeah. yeah that's that's kind of nutty. Well, Raul probably doesn't listen to us anymore because one, he has his own podcast and two, he's doing a better job on streaming into the void. But if he does listen, what will he hear about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are toasting the arrival of 2021. Mind you, 2021 won't really begin until enough people are vaccinated, which unfortunately will probably be by the fall. But it technically, officially has already started. Uh, 2020, on the other hand, was the end of the road for many people. And Michael has the epic obituary section to prove it. Two weeks off, and I swear we've got enough passings for an entire season of Six Feet Under. And I, I don't know if it's true that people like hold on until Christmas and then die soon after. But, I, I, you know, you look at the end of our show and it sure feels like it. And, and so we'll, we will try to be upbeat about it. And if Michael doesn't do this section quickly, it may just be like, I don't know, the end of him. Anyway, 
Uh, Meanwhile, uh, over in Pixar land, the film Ratatouille is enjoying a new life. It's gone from one of Pixar's animated blockbusters to a TikTok meme, to a collaborative community, to an actual honest-to-goodness online musical, complete with Broadway stars. But, you know, here's the thing. Who owns the rights? You know what? I own the rights. You own the rights. We all own the rights. Anyway, (laughs) on Inside Baseball, we'll look at the ongoing battle between William Morris Endeavor and the Writers Guild. The agency keeps insisting, we've got a deal. And the WGA keeps saying, uh, not so fast. Rewrite. Get exactly. Yeah. Are we being too easy on the writers, by the way? That's what some people say. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gilt to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. Uh, I did it last week and I posted it on Facebook. So I did post the worldwide box office last week on our Facebook and on our Twitter feed. So if you follow us there, you will have seen that information. And now we've got the info for the week ending January 3rd. We sure miss Comscore and everybody else. Box office is open around the world. Money is being made, not just in China. So come on, people, get back on the ball. But the number one film around the world is in China. It's called A Little Red Flower. And it's a heartwarming tale. And from the trailer, it looks like a Chinese fault in our stars where two young, beautiful people are dying of illness or cancer or something. And they fall in love and they're pretty. And it will Except break there your in China, they call it like a, a, t- a tear in our sky. Okay, that's or- right. And in this case, you know, like, the one you think is going to die first doesn't. I'm just guessing from the trailer what it looks like. But anyway, big, big hit. Uh, it's the New Year's. There's a big week of box office in China, just like it normally would be in North America and really around the world. But really, $116 million on its opening week. That's serious money. That's followed right by another big hit in China, a comedy called Warm Hug. I watched the trailer. It looks like a very lowbrow comedy. It made $80 million, though. People sucked it up. They were happy to. Last so this, week, is, this is the middling, uh, the middling reviewed warm hug earned a cool $80 million. That's right. And then right below that is Shockwave 2. Now, this opened up last week and made about $60 million on its opening week. Uh, It's a Chinese thriller. It stars Andy Lau in a story sort of like The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. It's technically a sequel to a movie called Shockwave. It's the same director, same star, but it's an entirely new story. It doesn't seem to have any connection. Well, this week, now last week, remember, it made $60 million. This week, it made $66 million. It's a big holiday weekend, but nonetheless, that's a huge hold. It's now at $126 million worldwide. Great hold. People clearly responded to the film, uh, so that's just you know, doing gangbusters. Wonder well, now Woman- I have to break in here and, and really talk to our Chinese listeners, okay? Uh-huh. Because you know, there's this stereotype that well, the, and and certainly if you read the newspapers uh, or or watch the news, you, you hear everybody, oh, the Chinese are copying the technology, and everybody's copying. You know, China is always caught. You know, if you're really going to live up to the stereotype, China, you can't. You have to follow everything. So here's the thing: first, the movie opens; it opens to big, big, big numbers, and then it drops fifty percent. That's the way movies are supposed to open. Okay, so now that we have given them that, they can copy that too. Not go up by six million dollars from week to week. That's not the way it works well and hollywood is showing them how it's done because that's exactly what happened to wonder woman 1984 that's playing in a number of countries anywhere where it's well it's playing even in the u.s i should say but basically it's it's pulling in coin mostly in countries where it is not available on hbo max in china especially it fell hard in its second week this is a movie we've seen get really rejected by critics and by fans the early reviews were kind of positive after that it fell off a cliff 
Critics and fans really do not like this movie. This, I mean, Wonder Woman itself was not a great movie. It wasn't on the best of my year list, but Chris Pine and Gal Gadot had great chemistry. And I liked the first half of it, the origin story. I thought there were some problems, but it was entertaining and people were excited to see Wonder Woman on the big screen with her own vehicle. This is this, her original movie. The, the, sorry, the, the original. First, the first Wonder Woman. Yeah, not okay, the yeah, Justice yeah. League or whatever. The second one, people are like, what is this? This is apparently a very bad film. I have not watched it yet. But boy, the Chinese audiences in particular also rejected it. But you're seeing that all over the world. It fell hard. So it's made $34 million worldwide this week. It's at $120 million, which proves, you know what, even with junk, you can make money, and it would have made a lot of money if it had opened, but it's also possible it would not have matched the original, because people are really... I, I shouldn't say that. Like, Aquaman made a billion dollars, so there's no reason to think maybe Wonder Woman wouldn't have made $800 million just from momentum alone. But boy, people are turning their back on this film. An entirely different story for Soul. This is the Pixar film that is only playing in countries where Disney Plus is not available. I don't think they made it available on screen in North America. Did they? It just went exclusively to Disney Plus, I believe. And Soul's gotten good reviews here, but around the world, people who've seen this movie in theaters, they have really responded to it. In China, in particular, its second week was way up on its first week. It didn't open big. But it, the word of mouth has been off the charts. All the, you know, like Rotten Tomatoes equivalent in China, there's one that's more populous than another one that's more arty, where it's harder to get a good score. Both of them, it's shot through the roof. So it's now made $28 million this week. It's at $33 million and counting. If Disney had been able to release this film worldwide, and there's no reason to think China is reacting to it weirdly, differently than other audiences would, they might have had a really big hit on their hands. I'm assuming Pixar, they almost always score four or five, six hundred million dollars just by getting out of bed. So they might have lost big bucks here as well. But jumping down a little bit, the Chinese can do it too. The Rescue, that's a Chinese action film by director Dante Lam. It costs $90 million. It fell very hard in its second week, just like Wonder Woman, just like Hollywood. And that movie uh, made $7 million this week. It's only at $67 million in counting. It really, it really took a beating. Uh, but jumping up a little bit, Dream of Eternity, a Chinese youth fantasy film, sort of like a Marvel movie. That made $20 million this week. The Crudes, A New Age, that made about $17 million this week. It's at $115 million worldwide. Demon Slayer, the movie Infinity Train. This is great news out of Japan. This film, last week, became the highest grossing movie of all time in Japan. It made $6 million this week. It's at $343 million worldwide. So those are two markets, China and Japan, where people have gotten the virus under control and are able to go to the movies hopefully safely and healthily. That's so far we've heard of no big outbreaks and they're setting records. So that's, that's great to hear below that is bath buddy, a Chinese comedy that made about $6 million this week. Some Hollywood movies opened up news of the world, the Tom Hanks film that's on that's uh, that's universal. So it's going to theaters and then in 17 days, it can go to premium video on demand so for those folk who want to pay 20 or $25 to see it, <laughs> but it's in theaters and it made about $5 million worldwide. So-so reviews, which is a shame because I was looking forward to it. 
And then a couple movies like I Remember, uh, this is a Chinese drama, made about a million dollars and set $10 million in counting, and a very good art film, Promising Young Woman, starring Carrie Mulligan, a great performance. She'll probably be nominated for an Oscar, if not win it. It made $1 million this week in its second week in release. It's at $2 million in counting, but it's got a long way to go. This is a crazy year where lots of movies that are Oscar eligible will be released for the first time in January, February, and March. So it's an unusual year, to say the least. And, and uh, most, will, if they hit theaters uh, in mass, or to, to any great acclaim, might do so after April. <laughs> so- <laughs> That's right. Uh, absolutely. And so Shockwave 2 made more uh, than it did in its opening week. Uh, uh, no, Shockwave 2 made more than the original in its opening week alone. So that film was a big hit. As I said, it, it held really well this week. Uh, last week when it just made 60 million that was more than the entire original film grossed so that really is catching on fire uh but again korea box office not doing so well that box office is shutting back down the the number one film in the country was wonder woman with just six hundred thousand dollars total you're saying you're saying that the 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 Korean box office, yeah, yeah, the Korean box office is down. Uh, the UK is back in lockdown, so cinemas are shut down. They're going to be locked down for four to six weeks at least. Schools are shut down to mid-February, all but essential businesses, and of course that includes movie theaters. So there will be no UK box office of any sort. And of course, while we were gone, Brexit happened. A terrible shame. It's bad things. Details will follow. What the fallout will be for the financial industry, which... Prime Minister Boris Johnson admits got the short end of the stick in this deal and other industries like entertainment. We don't know. It'll take a so, long so, time to find out. So London being the financial capital of Europe, one and of the financial pra- capitals of the world. Yes. No. Absolutely. Yeah, and and uh, they're, they're like, oh, yes, we were too busy worrying about fishing rights to worry about the thing that we actually do. Right. Exactly. But uh, the 10 fishermen, they're they're good. More news. MGM. How do you like my British accent, by oh, the way? Yeah. Perfect. And again, yeah. I'm not supposed to argue this year, so I'm just going to say <laughs> perfect. MGM is up for sale. Do you want to buy it? Should we expand Showbiz Sandbox? Hi. I'm just, uh, just my coins here. I just have to. Mm-hmm. Get, yeah, I. Hold on. Hold on. Pounds, pence. If you got a Bitcoin, we're in business. Uh, yeah, no, I'm just uh, $1, $2. No, I don't have enough money. Will Apple buy it? Uh, they're not playing that game, so they don't seem to want a library. Maybe they will change their mind. Maybe they'll see people aren't picking up Apple Plus or Apple TV. How much are they asking for it? Oh, who knows? They're not. They're just saying, hey, anybody interested? Kick the tires. Kick the tire. Yeah, I mean, certainly, if you wanted to get all of... Look, Apple has a streaming service. And no they library. Are, and literally no library. If right. they wanted to jumpstart their but library. I, but Amazon doesn't have a big library either, do they? No, they've been they've been licensing for the right. most part. They're just basically it's an add-on. Hey, there's a couple things to watch if you like. But they have a lot of originals now, mostly television shows. Well, but not a lot. I mean they've started up, but they were they were pretty thin, thin cupboard for a while, right? Pretty bare. I feel like. I mean, I don't yeah. go to Amazon to watch a ton of stuff. They have some good things to watch, no doubt about it. But they don't have a big backlog. Like, they didn't buy Fox or MGM or some studio and develop a huge library. And they don't even license a ton of stuff, do they? I mean, uh, I'm honest, Amazon, I don't really go on Amazon. Do. do they have a good amount? Oh, oh okay. yeah. They, they absolutely They're just do. licensing it. All right. Yes. Well, Apple said we're not playing that game. They don't just seem interested. It's just an add-on. I think basically they say if you're going to bundle it, you get Apple News. You get Apple Music, and hey, we'll throw in some TV shows and movies. But you know, if it's such piddling offerings, 
I don't see why it would be that big of a draw. Why bother unless you're going to really do it right? But, you know, they're successful and they don't seem to want it. Who will buy MGM? Disney? Oh, God. <laughs> well, there are, there are things to be made and remade from the uh, MGM library. Oh, I know there are, but I, could you just imagine, like, where's the MGM library now? It's in moratorium until we release the next <laughs> DVD. Yeah. Where, can anybody watch The Wizard of Oz? No, you can't. Not for seven years. Well, one movie we've been talking about and looking at is Perfect Strangers. That's the Italian comedy about people who have a dinner party and they'll say, hey, let's put our cell phones in the middle of the table. And no matter what phone calls or texts come through, we all get to see it and hear it. It's the dumbest idea ever in real life, but apparently it's a funny movie and it's been remade into more languages, more countries than any other film in history. And now they've just announced there will be an Arabic language version. It's set in Lebanon during the Lebanese revolution and during the COVID pandemic. Uh, It's seen as an Arabic film. They're going to combine Egyptian and Lebanese talent. They're hoping to appeal across the Arab world because there are movies that appeal to Saudi Arabia or Lebanon and elsewhere, but they're not always pan-Arab. They may be sometimes pan-worldwide and successful elsewhere, but this film is really trying to say we are a film for everyone in the Arab world. This may be the perfect comedy to do it. It's 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 working in every other country. Why not Arabia? So we'll see what happens with that. You know, I so I actually uh, in my trips to Dubai recently, kind mm-hmm. of that was one of the issues that came up was that the films that work in in the United Arab Emirates don't work in Saudi Arabia, or they don't work in Lebanon, or they certainly don't work in Egypt. And I was asking about, well, why not? I mean, is it a language issue? And the answer is yes, it is a language issue. What the what word is used for lemon, for instance, in Lebanon means something completely different in Egypt and then something completely well, different. Don't they have Lebanon. subtitles? Yes, yes. But I mean, I mean they it, watch it, English language movies, so and French movies, why would why would that be an issue? But you understand what I'm saying in terms of like, imagine if you're watching a movie that was mostly in English, like it sounds like English, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. Like it just that you'd need to read subtitles. Like a British boot, the British say boot instead of trunk. I mean, it's not that complicated. That was the way it was explained to me. And okay. and also tonally things that are funny in one uh, country don't necessarily uh, translate. I mean, there is, there is Lebanese Arabic. There, there are, you know, dialects of Arabic. There's Lebanese, uh, South Central Lebanese, Arabic, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it, they're, it's not exactly like English, American English versus, versus British, uh, English. British English, you know. So, so that's true. So it's confusing because it's, it's so close and yet different enough that it creates but a I, problem. I guess now that Saudi Arabia and Qatar, they're, they're apparently in late I stage mean, Egyptian, negotiations. Yeah, Egypt, Egyptian is a different language. So it's, that's a completely different language. So it wouldn't be, it's not like they're speaking Arabic. It's an oh, Afro-Asiatic yeah. language. So I'm not quite sure. Hey, if you can explain this to us in better, other than it's just simply cultural differences and they can't be bothered because they hate each other, which you have in America too. So I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not painting the Arab world as differently than anybody else. The English hate the French. Uh, if you can explain this better to us, reach out. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call us 888-567-SAND. 
You know, other remakes are happening. Rubik's Cube is being turned into a movie and separately a game show. And before you, you know, say, uh, it's January 1st, not April 1st. Okay. <laughs> April 1st is, is, is April Fool's Day. January 1st is New Year's Day. Before you say that's stupid, let me say the Lego movie because that was good against yeah, all logic. Yeah, but Legos actually had people. They had little tiny people. <laughs> uh, maybe the Rubik's Cube can talk. And Warner Brothers announced a bunch of sequels and they made a big point of saying, all right, we're making a Mad Max prequel called Furiosa. We're okay. making the color purple, the, the musical version, the live action version of the stage play. We're doing uh, Coyote versus Acme, which is a you know Roadrunner type movie. They're all going to be released in theaters exclusively in 2023. Can I translate? Can I translate? Yes. Let, let me d- put my Showbiz Sandbox translator ring on. And here's what we've got. They're all going to be, re- be released theatrically in 2023. Please stop calling us about this 2021 <laughs> plan. That's the translation there. Oh, I thought it was by Ovaltine. But anyway, <laughs> a little Christmas story joke. Hey, I drink more Ovaltine, actually. Uh, we have some TV ratings. This is from the Thanksgiving week. This is okay. If you want to get a full picture of what people are watching, it's going to take three to four weeks. So a little bit over a month ago, Nielsen tried to measure what were the top shows in streaming. Nine out of the ten were on Netflix. The only exception was The Mandalorian on Disney, but they racked up a lot of points. The Crown, 2.2 billion minutes reviewed. The Christmas Chronicles 2 with Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, that TV movie on Netflix, that was watched 1.5 billion times, minutes, I should say. And this is the only measurement we have. Netflix is releasing info about their new show, Bridgerton, saying X number of people watched it. And X number of people have watched that Robert Rodriguez family film for kids. I don't, when we were heroes or whatever it's called, I don't care because their information is unreliable and it's BS. They've told us their metric is if you watch five seconds of it, we count it as a view. They used to have a more reasonable metric, even though nobody else could second guess them or, you know, be a uh, independent arbitrator to say, yes, this is accurate. But we're not going to talk about the junk they release as a press release. You know, we know that Robert Rodriguez film was successful because they just announced they're making a sequel. So there you go. That's verifiable. They're putting more money into it. I believe them. It was a hit by their standards. It worked for them. Yeah, well, and David Spade was interviewed uh, over the weekend uh, in the L.A. Times, and he talked about basically what it was like being on a hit Netflix show versus being in a hit movie. Where nobody like, you know, knows. Yeah, exactly. He's <laughs> like, I secret. don't know. It's like yeah, I have no idea how how people. Uh, but people stop know. him on the street and say, "Hey, I love the show," and he's like, "Somebody's watching it." Or, or did he say he's in a complete bubble and he has no idea if anyone's watching? It? He, he said, and I quote, "You can't compare it to looking at the box office. That's like, oh, you'll probably get another movie, like when you have a hit movie." Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, no one is aware of this. You don't get the fun of going out to dinner to celebrate. It's it's like a text that's like, congrats, you're number one in the world. There's no Yankee doodle dandy running around the city feeling cool. <laughs> well, I don't know. If you're in the crown, I would think you would feel pretty cool. You know yes. everybody's watching it. You're getting a lot of buzz. If you're in Shit's Creek, which is not a Netflix original, but they got a piece of the show when they helped turn it into a big hit. You're in the Queen's Gambit. You know everybody's playing chess. So, you know, you know when it's working. But as far as solid numbers. You know, he numbers, tips his hand a little bit here, mm-hmm. actually. And he said, uh, you know, when you think about it and you go, okay, the wrong Missy, which, by the way, David Spade was in. What? Uh, it had. It had 59 million, 
the wrong Missy, M-I-S-S-Y. The wrong Missy? Is that a movie, a TV show? What is that? Yes, it's a TV show on Netflix. The wrong Missy. <laughs> Not a TV show, it's a movie. It's a movie uh, okay. on Netflix. It's a David Spade movie on Netflix. You know, it was a comedy. It was kind of... Well, it wasn't a Greek tragedy. Of course it was no. a comedy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he says it had 59 million views in the first month. So oh, if you say... Oh, that's... Yeah, whatever. Well, well, okay. So if you say Grown Ups made $160 million and tickets are $16... No, 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 no. What no, is that? 10 no, million no, people? No, 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 no. Don't repeat all that nonsense. That's that's nothing. Um, yeah, so that's whatever. So he doesn't... Yeah. Okay, don't repeat that because that's BS. So well, there, no, that came out in twenty. 20- the thing is, he's obviously quoting the numbers they give him. So they're giving well, those just, numbers. Well, to they him may too. put that as a press release. They did that with Bridgerton, sixty-five million blah. It's like whatever. It's meaningless because a, no one else is verifying it, and b, we know their metric is BS. They're not saying. Uh, 70 per- people watch 70% of the first episode, which used to be their previous measurement. Now they're just saying if it plays some of it, like a few seconds, they count it as a view. So it's completely BS. And don't they do that when you're scrolling past yeah, things? exactly. You get you get things caught up and all the so time. So 70 million people scroll past it and it like played? <laughs> we'll, in the- we'll know when Bridgerton goes to season two that it's been a success. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, uh, the Rubik's Cube is being made into a movie. Maybe the cube will talk. Nobody knows what's happening on Netflix. I told someone that, and I said, I said, even George Clooney won't know his his movie. He won't. He probably won't get real numbers. I'm like, well, they'll tell George Clooney. I'm like, no. well, I go, well, they haven't told anyone else. It's George Clooney. I understand. Maybe he's the exception to the rule. Maybe here's, how they tell, here's how they tell them. Hey, George, you do you want to make another movie? Yeah. You want to make another movie for us? Hey, you know what? We'll pay you a million dollars more this time. How about that? <laughs> okay. That's how he knows his movie did well. Now, some people say if you look at The Crown, that was watched. People watched 2.2 billion minutes of that show. Uh, two-thirds of it was the new season, and one-third of it was previous seasons that was a breakdown we got two weeks ago uh that may not still be holding but they said compare that to say a football game the number one show on traditional tv was a thanksgiving nfl game on fox its average audience was 30 million viewers so if you think of those 30 million viewers watching that entire football game that equates to about five billion minutes of viewing time that's a great way to compare it it's five billion but you know what that's the number one show on traditional TV. And The Crown, that's at 2.2 billion. That's, so that's ranked what? Number 10 for the week? I mean, that's, yeah, but you know, 30 million viewers is way more than number two and three that were on TV in Thanksgiving week. So 2 billion minutes of watching is a lot. That's a lot of eyeballs. Well, and that's, that's active watching. Whereas, let's face it, when you're watching a football game, you're answering email that's or you're doing other stuff. Again, that's how you reach men. So I don't know about that. But I thought that was interesting. They reached me this week with Ratatouille the Musical. That was a benefit for the Actors Fund. It raised more than a million dollars. It was a thing on TikTok, which I have actually never been on, not even for a second. And my my niece, Franny, bought it for me as a Christmas gift. She thought I would enjoy it. And she bought a ticket for me to Ratatouille the Musical. I wouldn't have seen it otherwise. I watched it, and it was very cleverly done, I have to say. Are you familiar with this? Well, here's what I'm familiar with, and maybe we can catch our listeners up, okay? Because basically, there was a meme going around, and I, I've i been on TikTok only because my kids are on TikTok, and not that they're posting on TikTok, but they're constantly watching TikTok, and I'm constantly watching our cell phone data minutes like shrink. <laughs> do, you not, do you not let them post something? Do you block them and say, I don't no, want no, you no, posting no, stuff? No, it's just, well, I think some people realize- do. They don't want their kids to be on YouTube and have creepy people watching them and say, oh, I like your video, you know? No, I think that what they found out was like, wow, it's really hard to make good ones of these. Uh, <laughs> well, that's so, useful too. Yeah. And um, 
So they showed me this whole Ratatouille. I guess there was somebody who you could created... read the intro. You could read the oh, intro oh, and, yeah, and, and learn about that. it better. <laughs> okay. Well, how about this? People online often <laughs> post creative stuff. They cover popular songs. They perform their own originals. They do fan fiction set in the world of Harry Potter and on and on. Sometimes their work even stands on its own. Like the Fifty Shades of Grey franchise, by the way. That actually came from fan fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the latest internet phenom to become an actual thing is Ratatouille the Musical. So on TikTok, creatives in lockdown offered up musical shorts based on like silly ideas, going to the grocery store, things like that. Then a school teacher posted an ode to Remy the Rat, the hero of the Pixar film who dreams of becoming a great chef. That was covered by another TikToker. Okay. So now you have, it's like, it's like a snake eating a, its own tail. It's like a, yeah, you well, know. people, yeah, it's not, that's not bad. Someone with a big following said, oh, that's a great song and covered it. Right. And then other people created their own songs. Choreographers got invol involved and delivered dance numbers. Someone mocked up a playbill cover and essentially a community was born. Now, this one became really popular to this community and was just turned into an actual online production with stars like Titus Burgess from uh, why can't I remember the name of uh, um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt okay. is, is the t TV show he was on. Adam Lambert, Wayne Brady. And Mary Testa, all the great, the great Mary Testa, the great Mary Testa, all performed songs from the show. Tunes like "I Knew I Smelled a Rat," the cleverly mounted benefit performance, streamed on TikTok for seventy-two hours, raised more than one million dollars for the Actors Fund. Now, where are my kids when I actually need them telling me about stuff like this on TikTok? Instead, all I get is like silly things about like parents yelling at their kids or kids yelling at their parents. And but I thought they did show it to you. I thought they said, oh, look at this. Only the first part. Like, oh, yeah, look, hey, you well, like Ratatouille. Hey. Well, that's cool. That I don't they, know why they, my they kids sound it, like that. They yeah. caught it when cool stuff was being created by individuals. That's, that's, that's a phenomenon. But yes. here's the complicated question. Who owns the rights to all of this? I do. I own them <laughs> all. And, uh, well, you would say Disney, right? Because Pixar. Well, well, Disney owns the right to make a musical version of Ratatouille, which is a great Pixar film. I think it's one of their very strong ones. I think it's a very good movie, well worth watching. And in the old days, studios would freak out or publishers would freak out. People would write fan fiction about Star Trek and, you know, Kirk and Spock would make out or, or it turned into a horror film and they'd freak out and say, oh, you can't write about that. That's that's you're going to destroy our franchise and we, you know, that's going to mess with us. And they'd, they'd really lose their minds and send cease and desist orders. They finally learned, you know what, as long as people are posting it online, not making money from it, just celebrating the event, don't worry about it. You're not responsible for it. All it will do is send people back to Star Trek or send people back to Ratatouille. Disney clearly had the same response to this online phenomenon for Ratatouille. And people are probably making up musical numbers for every Disney property known to man. Right. So they said, you're right. You can go ahead, do it. It's no big deal. But of course, TikTok is also involved. So you have well, people. TikTok is the platform. These guys could have done this on YouTube. They could have done it anywhere. Right. But TikTok, of course, has a user agreement saying they own the rights to anything you put on there. They say you, you own the creative rights to what you create, but we also are the only ones who can do anything with it. You can't go ahead and make something commercial out of it. You can't profit from what you've created and put on TikTok and we can repackage it any way we want. So they think they're involved. 
course, you have people in Australia and Oklahoma are creating a song together with one guy doing the choreography and one gal writing the lyrics and another person who's transgender doing the music. So you've Good got luck. Can, you, you've got, you think can, it's hard being in a rock band? Yeah, <laughs> that's so, good. never gonna. So you're never a, gonna un, so it's to unwind that. Method. It's a community created effort. And so the question is, well, what happens if it actually went on to become something? If well, here's they, the thing with, with TikTok. What TikTok would say is, look, you can't use the video from TikTok. Right. And then go and use that video, the video from TikTok, and make money from that particular video. Now, you go out and you refilm it. Yeah, okay, then you guys own the whole thing. It's all yours. But don't use the video from TikTok. And, oh, by the way, if we want to use that video, in a commercial, we right. can right, or anything, or even make a stream it together. You know, who knows? But yes, that's what TikTok would say. The users, of course, would say, "Oh, we created our own song." If Disney made a musical version on stage and wanted to use the songs, they would clearly go right to the kids who created it. And these are sometimes adults who have dreams of working in the theater. Would TikTok get a piece of that show? Would they even get like one percent of the show if it became a musical? Would they say, no, "Well, hey, we were the platform"? And no, here's how TikTok <laughs> would benefit. TikTok would benefit by being uh, the platform that launched it. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody goes, well, I have to have my own TikTok show now. They don't say, oh, I have to have my own show that no it's and by the way that was actually I, I just couldn't come up with a really good name. So they mm -hmm. couldn't they couldn't come up with you. No. And long, long, long answer short. No. Yeah. Now they do have onerous user agreements. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. TikTok, you name it. They all have user agreements that say they own their firstborn male and they own your life and your DNA. Uh, but here's the tell. Could they pay my bills? That would be great. If they <laughs> here's own all the, here's the tell about what rights they have. None of them have ever tried to profit a single penny from anything that was created on their platform. For example, Lil Nas X, the biggest single in decades, if not one of the biggest hits of all time, Old Town Road, began on TikTok. Does TikTok have publishing rights on that or even a piece of it? Did they get part of his contract when he went to a record? No, of course not. They don't have any rights to him or his song whatsoever. Justin no, instead, Bieber. instead what they do is they basically say, hey, aren't we cool? Aren't don't we you cool? want to come here and become the next Lil Nas right. X? Justin Bieber wrote original songs on YouTube. Philip Pullman, the children's author, wrote entire stories on Twitter. Twitter does not own that story. <laughs> Fifty no. Shades of Grey started on fan fiction online for Twilight, the creator of Twilight. Those characters were called the names of the characters in Twilight originally, the spanky, spanky characters in Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, the people, the fan fiction website they began on, they do not own the rights, nor does Stephanie Myers, the creator of Twilight. Brad Paisley posts stuff on Twitter, and uh, people do stuff on Instagram. All these people are creating tons of content that's original and unique to them on all these platforms, and those platforms have never even tried to insert themselves and say, we have a legal right to a cut of whatever you're doing beyond our platform. So Wouldn't it be great if, if you could do like, I don't know, if you had, instead of YouTube, it was like you theater, like you well, stay. Well, you can. They do have YouTube. They do have you theater. I mean, they have YouTube communities devoted to theater. Right, but you know what I'm saying? Like people no, actually coming together online and saying, let's put a whole play together. What do you think we're talking about? Ratatouille the musical. It's theater people who right, came but together. It's a one-off. I mean, if people did it's it not again. It's a one-off. They do it all the time. Oh. No, the people okay. create stuff together and do it all the time. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt has an entire website called Hit Record that is about people collaboratively. I thought it was Hit Record. 
Well, it de- well, it's if you look at it, it's a uh, that's the joke. I know. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. So if you look at that community, it's people getting together to create stuff that's collectively owned too. It's part of the great big beautiful world of arguing about copyright and domain and who owns the rights to stuff. And if one of these websites like TikTok ever sued and said, you know what, we own a piece of Ratatouille the musical, that would be a big deal. But until they do. We know that they are acknowledging they don't have the rights to that stuff, and they don't have a piece of Ratatouille, the musical. They are small cheese, small mice in a big cheese world. <laughs> I don't know what I just said, but get on to Big Deal or Big Whoop. <laughs> yes, you did. You did say Big Deal or Big Whoop. No, actually, you said Big Deal. Okay. So it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, Amazon is making a bigger push into podcasts. Uh, Our number is 888. Oh, you blew my joke. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we don't script everything out. I was planning to, instead of saying, I was just going to say our phone number is 888. (laughs) We are for sale. Let's just put it that way. Tell us the story. Well, okay, so Amazon just acquired Wondery, a four-year-old podcast creator and producer. The Wall Street Journal estimated a deal might value Wondery at more than $300 million. Last June, the company estimated it had some 20 million unique listeners to its content, kind of like us, I might add. Right, right. Uh, Amazon includes podcasts on Amazon Music and via Audible, with more than 100,000 shows containing 5 million episodes. It's also paying for original shows from Will Smith, Dan Patrick, and the like. Spotify, of course, has Joe Rogan and the once and future royals, Harry and Meghan. Big deal or big whoop? Again, that's 888-567-7263. We better get a phone call after all. We've, I don't think we've ever had an episode where we've I, mentioned the, the phone number more. I love this next story. Okay. So the next story is actually it's that's public true. domain day. One of my favorite days of the years. That's Books, true. Songs, movies, and other works of art that were released in 1925 are now entering the public domain. So it's not like the great Gatsby hasn't been adapted and readapted numerous times before, but now all bets are off. Other works in the public domain include songs by Ma Rainey and her Black Bottom, W.C. Handy, Fats Waller, Irvine Berlin's classic Always, the comedy classics The Freshman by Harold Lloyd and Go West by Buster Keaton, two silent film greats, the novel The Trial by Franz Kafka, but only in the original German, That's Not a Joke. <laughs> also, the first year of The New Yorker magazine, Dreiser's novel An American Tragedy, which became the classic film A Place in the Sun. But the film won't enter the public domain until 2076. In fact, the BBC wrote a story claiming that 1925 is the most important year of all time for novels. And we haven't even mentioned my favorite book yet, what I think is the greatest work from 1925 and one of the greatest of all time. Is it a big deal or a big whoop? And what's the novel, Sperling? When I was reading this originally, I thought, okay, the the novel has got to be Hemingway's Nick Adams stories, but was that a novel or was it just stories? That Collection was of short stories, and that's one of the key works from 1925. It was the first time he started writing in that terse style that he became famous for and telling stories about Nick Adams. So that's a big book. So is Gertrude Stein's pretty impenetrable book, The Making of Americans. Uh, the new Negro Anthology came out in 1925, showcasing work by Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes and Gene Toomer. John Dos Passos published 
Manhattan Transfer, which is probably the first book or important book that you could call cinematic, the way it copied and was influenced by the way movies told stories. You could see that reflected in Manhattan Transfer, which of course has happened a lot. So many novels now get called cinematic. But the book I'm talking about is Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, a stream of consciousness work, not the first, but an incredibly important book, great novel. I think it's super easy and accessible. Some people find it hard, but I feel like stream of consciousness is so easy to grasp. You know, you just jump into the story. It's a woman going shopping for flowers and getting ready for a party that night. It seems simple and banal, but it's incredibly emotional and rich. And it's just a, a great, great work in the shadow Hasn't of World War One. Into a movie? That's oh, of course. Yes, yes. I'm in multiple ways. Yes. And you know what? Until the U.S. changed its laws in 1978, this year, instead of looking at stuff entering the public domain from 1925, we would be looking at stuff entering the public domain from 1964. And that would include the movies Goldfinger, A Hard Day's Night, the movie Mary Poppins, kids' classic novels like Harriet the Spy and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We've got a link to a Duke Law article about all of this in our show notes. It's kind of mind-blowing to think how much they push back that public domain. Because 64, you feel like, wow, really? Could a hard day's night be in the public domain? That's crazy. Doesn't that just seem almost impossible? Yeah, well, I, but it does, actually kind of does. Because yeah, that's how we've been Paul trained. Ma Paul yeah. McCartney just released a new album. Paul so McCartney 3. <laughs> Great final track on that album. I don't love it, but I like it, and I love the final track. But my God, you know, we've been trained to think, oh, that stuff's not supposed to be in the public domain. Well, it can be, and it could be. And it could be yours for the low, low price of, no, just kidding. Uh, speaking of low, low prices, that's how much Amazon paid. For the NFL, I'm kidding, mm. of course. Amazon and the NFL took a huge gamble, making the streamer the primary platform for a regular season game. It was a matchup between the Cardinals from Arizona and the 49ers from San Francisco, with Amazon's Prime Video, the main way people could watch it, along with Twitch, also owned by Amazon, I might add. And mobile options, uh, you could also watch it on mobile options, by the way, that the NFL operates. The two teams uh, and Verizon, you could watch it on Verizon. Oh, plus local channels, by the way, they carried the game as well. In San Francisco and St. Saint, not St. Louis, Arizona. They used to be the St. Louis Cardinals. Now the the Arizona Cardinals. Are you confused yet? By the way, yes, yes, well, I am. Well, well, don't worry. In the end, the game drew about 5.9 million viewers combined, which is more than the four games that aired exclusively on the NFL Network and Team Markets last season. So they averaged 5.6 million on, on those on that network. So is any of this a big deal or a big whoop, or should I just move right along to the next? Well, it's a big whoop because we've seen it happen before and it keeps happening. It's it's new for Amazon, but it's happened on Facebook and elsewhere with sporting programming and it draws viewers. You're going to reach fewer people when you're exclusive to Amazon or exclusive to the NFL network. You're going to reach fewer people if you're only on Twitter, but you will reach hardcore fans and they think the money's worth it. I feel like it's long term, not a great idea, but you know, they say the dollars add up. Okay, well, this next story is evolving. Hulu is getting serious about its TV service. The Disney-owned streamer just struck a deal with CBS Viacom to add 14 more channels to its offerings. So now those purchasing Hulu Plus Live TV will get MTV, Nickelodeon, BET, Comedy Central, and more. Yours for the low... No, just kidding. Uh, yes, streaming and original content is where it's at. Just ask Netflix. Or Raul Burrell. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Raul Burrell knows that. Uh, Rock, Roku it just snapped up the library of content created by the late, unlamented 
service Quibi. Did they actually finalize that deal? I thought they they hadn't, but well, they're snapping it up. Snap. Okay. It up. Well, there is no word on a price or what exactly Roku is Roku is buying or for how long. But hey, it's content, and some of it got pretty good reviews. I mean, nobody watched it, but the critics did, and they liked it. Big deal or big whoop? Well, I think it's a big deal. I think the Live Plus TV offerings, there's only going to be a few players. There's not going to be 20 people offering a bunch of channels. So ultimately, it will shake out, and you'll just see you know, Amazon and Hulu and a few others making it work. You know, There's just not going to be room for 20 services offering that sort of uh, over-the-air streaming setup with a bunch of cable channels. You've know, you got to get a lot of them, and Hulu's made that deal. They've now got CBS on board, so their service looks more robust. As far as Roku... Everybody wants original content. Roku's been making original content, and you had a bunch of content lying around created by Quibi, which was going to be gone unseen. Now, I'm not quite sure what they can buy because one of the deals with Quibi was the rights would revert to the owner after seven years. Maybe Quibi kept the rights to license that content again, but who knows? They're all looking at the contracts and figuring out what can they buy and how much should they pay for it. But at least some of that work people created won't go to waste. And yeah, we said it was unlamented, but Always happy to see people try new things. It never made sense from the start, but no, we were not rooting against you. We're all, you know, be happy to be proved wrong. We just weren't. Well, that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And here's how this story affects you. If you have an agent or a manager, it probably affects you. And especially if you're a writer. That is and for especially sure. if you worked at William Morris Endeavor, <laughs> that, that's which, even more which is not the case for Meredith Wechter. I hope I'm saying her name right. Are managers cooler than agents these days, Sperling? Well, you know, that, the funny thing is, okay, when I worked at an agency, this was many, many moons ago. They definitely uh, weren't cool then. <laughs> well, here's the thing. So agents were, that's pretty much, if you wanted to work and you were a writer, a director, or an actor, you had to have an agent because the agent, by law, is the only person who can solicit work for you. A manager can help you strategize which role to take, maybe produce. But you some- don't need an agent to get work. You don't need an agent. I mean, to get I, work. I, you're telling me as an actor, I can't solicit work on my own. You can. However, the idea is that these agencies, whether it's creative artists no, or I, I know, know they, they help. Them. They're, yeah, so I'm saying, but I'm saying you don't need an agent in terms you know, of for like years. For right. years, Harrison Ford had no agent. I know. That's, I, I, that's what I would do. He just had a lawyer to look at his contracts. And I thought, one more reason, that guy is smart. Yeah, well, and then he eventually did get an agent uh, when his career was on the other side of, you know, the peak of his career. Well, he was, he, realized- never, he was never willing to transition to character actor or to smaller roles or to TV. And I feel like he hurt himself because he's a terrific actor and he started just, he wanted to be the lead and he wanted to have the younger co-star. And it was just, no, you know, he should have transitioned to interesting parts, interesting work, television, where the money was and good material was, but he wouldn't do it. He wanted to be the leading man. Right. Oh, well, well and, and, you know, he's still, still a, a very good actor. Oh, yeah. Great time actor. to time. Uh, so, crashes planes occasionally. Anyway, Meredith Wechter left William Morris Endeavor. And well, she well, left the, the reason company. I mentioned all of this is that mm-hmm. the, back then, you know, when I was working, you didn't want to be a manager because. I don't know. Agents were cooler because, you know, they're the ones that really knew where, where they knew everything. They had their pulse on the finger. But yeah, then all, yeah, all yeah. of a sudden, all of a sudden, agents became corporate 
They were like corporate lawyers, and instead managers became cool because they could produce your movie, they could produce your television show, they could produce your streaming series, and they could, you know, they could technically, you know, between you and me, they could kind of find your work. You know, they could work with an agent and kind of find your work, even though they weren't supposed to be. And that and may be one reason Meredith Wechter is leaving William Morris Endeavor to be a manager. She may be headed to Sugar 23, but the fact that she's leaving made headlines in the trades, and she reps... Gal Gadot, Keanu Reeves, and Jason Momoa. So those are big names. Well, and this is just, uh, you know, this is the story of the year, right? This yeah. is one of the, uh, you had Peter Michelli leaving to start his own management firm. He left CAA, big television agent. Uh, and basically, uh, the reason that I, I mentioned him specifically is when he was raising money in the investment deck, he started underlying why being an agent is no longer cool. He basically <laughs> was saying, look, they have to go find other streams because with the WGA deal, they're not going to be able to, to package television shows anymore. They're not going to be able to, to go out and produce their own content anymore. Managers, managers can do that. We could have a whole slate of productions with our own talent. That's not something that agents can do anymore. That's right. And for two years, the Writers Guild of America was battling everybody to make those changes, or at least bring some clarity and feeling like their agents should not be making more money than them off the things they created. And why are the agents calling the shots rather than the creatives? They had a long battle. They have now settled with everyone except for William Morris Endeavor. Yet again, uh, William Morris Endeavor said, hey, CAA made a deal. We see a path forward. We're very excited. Uh, and then the WGA said, well, we don't have a deal, even though William Morris Endeavor tried again to pretend that they did. Uh, William Morris Endeavor says the WGA won't even negotiate with them. They're complaining about that, though that seems unlikely since we've seen the WGA negotiate with every other agency and tweak the deals that they've made. Every step along the way, somebody new has come in and they've asked for something different or expand this or shrink that, and they've been accommodated. They've worked. They've compromised. And now the William Morris Endeavor tried to take him to court, but a judge has denied their move for an injunction against the WGA, and the WGA went public. They said, look, they made us a new offer, but they basically didn't budge on anything. <laughs> they, they just refused the things that everybody else has agreed to, and we're just hugely far apart. And they're not facing the reality that we're serious about what we're doing here. And their public letter details the many ways they say the William Morris Endeavor falls short. Now, other people have written us and called us and said, you guys are being too nice to the writers. They're actually being obnoxious and unprofessional. They're hard to deal with. That may be true. And I'm certainly sympathetic to the writers. But they've made deals with everyone else. They even strengthened their deal with CAA by saying, look, no games here. We know you've got a parent company. We know you've got other people who own a piece of you. You can't say, well, they're not a majority owner, so they can own a production company, or this entity isn't technically CNA, so they can own a... No, 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 no. Let's not play games here. We're serious about this. So well, they and they didn't prevent any affiliated company, so their owners, their, their private equity owners, aren't prevented from buying into a production company. They just can't have more total more than 20%. It's no well in the case of in the case of the private equity company, they have to be transparent about it and let the WGA know. What they're saying is CA itself cannot own more no, than 20%. No, no, no. The C according to the article in Variety or the Hollywood Reporter that I linked to, CAA and their parent company agree the 20% maximum includes both of their holdings together. Oh, okay. Wow. Yes, well, yes, no. That was the big change that happened. You know, every step of the way they've sort of loosened up. Somebody said, well, we 
don't want 15, we want 20%, not 15%, or we don't need a year, we need two years to devolve all these contracts. Or well, because what about you want to do ex- it on terms that are good for you. you and what to- about extending this uh, you know, deal we already have in place or that? So they've been accommodating. But here, they sort of locked down and said, look, now we're talking about somebody with a big owner and other people who can own big companies. So no, you cannot be a 19% owner of CAA and own MGM. No, we're not doing that because that would be a conflict of interest. So their public letter details these issues. For example, CAA and their parent company put their production company into a blind trust. According to the WGA, William Morris Endeavor rejects a blind trust, and there's no mention of the article of a date for them to reduce their holdings to 20%. CAA agreed to penalties if it doesn't meet the terms and deadline on their production company reduction. William Morris Endeavor rejects any penalties. CAA and their parent company say they agree to a 20% cap, including both of their holdings together. No games here. William Morris Endeavor does not. And everybody, UTA, ICM, CAA, all agree the deal is binding to all shareholders, regardless of the stake they own in said agencies. According to the WGA, William Morris Endeavor insisted they wanted exemptions so someone could own 19% of William Morris Endeavor and 100% of, say, Sony or a production company. And they say, look, we're miles apart. Just because they're the last person to make a deal doesn't mean they get the best deal of everyone. (laughs) You know, yes, they're one of the big ones. They worked with CAA. They made a deal happen. But they're just saying, look, we're miles apart. I'm waiting for some comment from William Morris Endeavor other than they say, well, they won't negotiate with us. It seems to be what they mean is they won't do what we want. (laughs) It's been two years. There's a couple things going on here. So here's here's the thing. they, if I'm not mistaken, there is no public deadline for when CAA has to get rid of its. No, they haven't agreed upon deadline. Right, but that they're pers- they're purposefully not making it public. Well, that's okay, but that's okay because well, and there's a they reason have for a that. deadline. They have a yeah. They don't want right. to have. They don't want people able to hold them over a barrel to the last minute. And they got to make a deal, and they right, say, "Oh, exactly. we know you've got one day." Of course not. We're not yeah. asking for that from William Morris Endeavor. They're not asking right. them to do anything different from CAA. So all whenever you're doing these kind of collective bargaining things, there's always wait. And I'm I, supposed to be nice. I'm sorry. You're right, Sperling. Great point. <laughs> well, <laughs> I like the new Michael. Uh, so, um, but so you then have um, well, when I did virtual print fee deals, when I when I was a part of negotiating those, you'd always have the studio that came in first, and it was usually Paramount or Sony. They'd come in first. And they'd always say, here's our terms. And, here's they would, we want. and they would have an agreement that said, if someone else gets better terms, we get them too. Called Most Favored Nations. Of and course, of course. For a while, Warner Brothers always, always yeah. first of all, they had more movies than anybody. They had right. 30 movies a year. They wanted to go last. Why? And they were because also they wanted- talent friendly, though. They were also talent friendly. No, but in terms of this, this was a this was basically a logistics deal. This was about shipping of prints and 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 mm-hmm. this was really just you know equipment costs and this was all very technical gobbledygook. But the reason Warner Brothers wanted to go last, they wanted everybody else to do the negotiating, and then they'd see what was on the table, see what they still had to negotiate for, and then they would do that, giving what they negotiated for to everybody else. So they didn't want to have to have all these fights and then find out later that Sony wasn't able to get them the thing they really wanted. Right. So so they basically let Sony and Fox 
and Paramount and Disney and all these other studios and distributors do all the fighting and then would eventually come in and come to an agreement. And usually they would shave a few things yeah. here and there. And well, that's exactly what you have William Morris trying to do, except here's the problem. They're there not are trying to shave any players. This and, isn't six players. This is, I mean, what, there's 80 different agencies minimum? Well, more importantly, I don't hear them saying, here was our counteroffer. They're just saying, no. We won't do a blind trust. No, we won't accept a cap. No, we won't accept that it's binding on all shareholders. I don't hear them saying, well, what if it was, you know, 24% or 22% rather than 20%? That's where a counteroffer or something where they can say, well, we're trying to make this reasonable, you know, or we can't agree on the time frame to devolve the company, even though we won't make it public. Their expectation is so much more onerous than ours. All I'm hearing is, no, we don't want to do any of this. <laughs> so uh, I'm not hearing their counteroffer, or, nor are they winning the court of public opinion by explaining their case other than to say they're being jerks, they won't negotiate with us, and we don't like them. And that's, that's how I feel. I've been very pro-writer the whole time. I realize that's a blind spot for me. Uh, I realized two years ago, you and I felt the writer's skill was exactly right. Why should your agent be making more money off the Cosby show than you, the creator of the Cosby show? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, they what, could make more, more We heard money countless stories about, we, we heard countless money. stories about writers or stars or directors finding they didn't know there was an offer from this TV network or that movie studio because their agent didn't want to make that deal because they got better terms elsewhere, but it's not where I want to be. Or they find themselves saddled with a star or a director or a writer they don't want. Why? Because that person is in-house and the agent will get more money, but I don't want to work with them. I want to work with that director who's at another talent agency. And this was happening again and again. Packaging became the tail that wagged the dog and writers felt like they were getting screwed over and it was just getting worse with production companies. Now you're in the crazy position of your agent being your boss. Oh, I got well, you a you great know. deal. And you know what? They fought for two years and they won. They have absolutely won full credit to them. Well, and you could still make more money than, uh, than your, your client. If you're now as an agency, I mean, if your agency happens to represent the writer the director. Well, but and that's maybe what they were forcing on you. Exactly. But they were. Well, forcing. no, if it just so happens. Yeah, that yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. Which, by yeah. the way, does happen all the time. That sometimes that happens because it's just easier for a studio to say yes to a movie if it's got all the pieces in place. Yes, yeah, so that was the whole BS of packaging. Yes. And it became this. However, oh, it's so easy for all you got to do is say yes, not think for yourself. No, the agency became a profit participant. Uh -huh. And that's where the problem is because then it's incumbent upon the agent as a profit participant to make the production cost and budget as yeah. low as possible. You're such an agent. The idea that CA just happens to have the best star, best director, and best actor for this particular movie, they just all happen to work in my company. What a surprise. 99% of the time, packaging, it just happens to be the person who works at CAA. You know, when I was doing it, there were times where uh, packaging, that is, it was only for motion pictures. It wasn't for television. Certainly at the end of the day, the agency never owned a piece of the movie, unlike television. Uh, they never got a profit participation. And I, because of that, I would go out to find directors or actors that might not be, you know, within the agency, but would get the project going. And all of a sudden you'd have a writer and a director working. Okay, fine. You didn't get the actor, right. but still you had a writer and a director working. And that's why you're no longer an agent. <laughs>
Well, you're supposed to be ruthless also. and cruel. You weren't supposed to do the best job for your client. You were supposed to do the best job for yourself. It's like being a stockbroker and not having to be required to do what's best for the person you're making advice for. You're like, well, well, well here's I, what I, I predict will happen. Caveat emptor. Well, you no need to predict. They've won. Packaging no, is no, no, fairly no. I, I mean about managers. Uh-huh. Here's what I think is going to happen. I think you've pissed off a bunch of agencies, right? They, be, and they become managers, yeah. Yeah. Well, and agents, and they're kind of pissed and they're going to go after these managers and start going, oh, I'm sorry, did your manager get you that job? Yeah. How is that? Because that is against the law. There is a law. There is an actual law on the books where a manager cannot do that. So they will start going after managers. And by the way, they will force the guilds to do it as well. You know, but when you're Harrison Ford, the argument that you couldn't have gotten a job unless your manager helped you is kind of hard to make. So unless you're a nobody, unless you're a nobody, the idea that your agent is so important, he answered the damn phone. You know what? That's all he did. No, he no, answered the phone. The exception, the pr- you're talking the exception. The I'm talking about I'm- 99% of the time, the working actors and you, what your agent did. I got you that job. You answered the phone. You know, big deal. Oh, I <laughs> know. Uh, I don't. I think agents are bullshit. I would never have I, had an agent. I would <laughs> never have had an agent like Harrison Ford. I would have had a lawyer. If, period. No manager. No Ford. agents. No. I, he had one before he wasn't anybody. He didn't have one ever. He didn't want an agent. He didn't want. Why am I paying you twenty five percent to manage my non existent career? He 10%. did. He made it. He no ten percent for the agent, fifteen percent for the manager. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you're talking 25%. (laughs) Oh, well. Oh, well. Yeah, no, I've always heard Harrison Ford and thought, yeah, that's exactly what I do, too. As soon as you're a a writer, all you need them is a lawyer to look at your contracts. Well, a lot of writers, uh, you know, they have, well, I'm not, we could go into this in detail and maybe should in a future episode of how agencies and managers work together and how agencies differ from managers and, and what, what that they're supposed to be. But there are, if you are not Harrison Ford, there are reasons to have an agent. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. You know, especially if you're a, yeah. 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 Uh, And yes, there are writers out there who are like, why do I have both? Why do I have an agent and a manager? There, and probably, way, unless you want to have production companies and a big elaborate thing, you probably shouldn't. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, packaging is dead, and so are a lot of people. It seems. I was to wondering be, how you were going to transition to that one. Okay, it seems to be true that pe- more people die in winter months. That seems to be fairly conventional wisdom, and it, you always hear anecdotally, "Oh, people hold on till Christmas, or they hold on till New Year's, or they hold on to their birthday, or they hold on until somebody has lost an election." <laughs> or until the end of our show. Until they're holding until on. They're 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 you can do it. You can make it, Grandpa. But if it's true, <laughs> it seems like it. A lot of people died in the last two weeks, and we want to try to remember them. Do you know director Joan Micklin Silver? Did you see any of her movies like Crossing Delancey or Hester Street? I actually, I know this is going to sound crazy. I worked for her agent. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it. You know, she had a tough career. She was like all female directors post the silent era. She was groundbreaking, unfortunately, just by being a woman. And she struggled. She made Hester Street in Yiddish with English subtitles in black and white. And it made money. Then she made Crossing Delancey for $4 million. It grossed $16 million. It made money. And yet she struggled all her career to be taken seriously. Her films were too ethnic. They were too female. You know, it was always a battle with her, but, you know, she died at the age of 85, and by God, she made a career for herself. Well, and the next person that you have on your list here is Lynn Key. 
That's right. He's a producer of TV shows and video games. He's a video game tycoon thanks to Game of Thrones Winter is Coming, a video game blockbuster that made his fortune. He's also producing a Chinese-language TV series based on Three Body Problem, a Chinese series of novels, sci-fi novels, we've talked about on the show. So he's also credited as a producer on the English-language version coming to Netflix. He died in Shanghai on Christmas Day at the age of 39. Why? From office politics. Apparently, someone poisoned his cup of tea. Oh, my God. Internal company politics led one of his executives to kill him. That's the allegation coming out of China. It sounds like a, a movie or TV series of its own, doesn't Wait a it? Second. Did, did somebody just like read the newspaper, find out what was going on in Russia and go, yeah, let's do that, too. <laughs> Russia did not invent poisoning, but you don't no, see no, that no, a lot. I mean, in, you don't see that a lot in businesses. Good Lord. I know. I'm just, you know, there was poisoning recently in the news. and Yeah. Okay. Now, now, the McGuire sisters, unless you're a certain age, you probably have never heard of them. Uh, but they were a popular trio. They came after the Andrews sisters and the Mills brothers and before the Supremes. But they were big for their period. Uh, the big person in it was Phyllis McGuire. She died at the age of 89. And you might know them because their life was depicted in the HBO movie Sugar Time, starring Mary Louise Parker as Phyllis. Now, they shot to fame via a talent show, Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, on the radio, or in, oh, maybe that was even TV in 1952. I forget now. But they had big hit singles like Moon Glow, Sugar Time, Picnic, and Good Night, Sweetheart, Good Night. Uh, and they were big. They had synchronized dancing, matching outfits, hairdos, all matching. Definitely, you know, an iconic music trio. But they hit a bump in the mid 60s. Their music was becoming out of fashion, and Phyllis was romantically linked to mobster Sam Giancana. She had to testify to a grand jury. Sure, I know he's a criminal, but I don't know what type. I don't know the details. Don't bother me. He tells me he's in construction. <laughs> right. He's in the sanitation business. And of course, they broke apart. They came back together. They hit the oldie circuit. She died at her home in Las Vegas. This I love. Her home, typical modest fashion for the city, included its own beauty parlor, a moat with swans in it, and a replica of the Eiffel Tower, which shoots up through the ceiling into the sky. <laughs> a classic Las Vegas home. I want to see a, a beauty parlor. Like, yeah. what do you do? Like, I, I don't know. Move from chair to chair. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, wow. I really want to know what's going on there. Now, speaking of of of, uh, well, I guess people of a of a certain age. Remember when I saw the film about Helen Reddy early this year? Yes, and uh, I am woman. Yeah, I am woman. Yeah, uh, of course, based on her song, and then she died recently. Mm -hmm. Like within months of me seeing it, three months. Uh, well, and then you might recall me seeing uh, the movie about Pierre Cardin. Oh, remember? no, I forgot about that. A documentary, documentary about his life. Yeah, I, I saw that and we talked about it on, on a past episode. And sure enough, he passed away at the age of 98. If I were you, do not show me a documentary about yourself. <laughs> because uh, I don't know what it is, but... I, I had a couple of interviews in college I set up, and then they died. Frank Zappa. I'm like, oh my God, I can't do any more interviews. People are going to die as soon as I speak to them. Uh, Louis Maul. It was getting scary there for a little while. But yeah, he died at the age of 98. 
He's not a stretch. We don't talk about fashion, but he had sort of a movie career. He really dreamt of a movie career, even as an actor, but he was fated for the runway. He did have some film connections. He was an uncredited person doing costume making on the classic 1946 film Beauty and the Beast directed by Jean Cocteau. And Jean Cocteau introduced him to Christian Dior. And after just three or four years, he had his own house, Pierre Cardin did. He also did costumes for actress Jean Moreau in a number of films. And most iconically, he dressed Patrick McNee for the TV series The Avengers, a very dapper Patrick McNee, I might say. But he also worked with movie stars like Elizabeth Taylor, Brigitte Bardot. His spin on the Nehru jacket inspired the Beatles, or more accurately, Brian Epstein, I imagine. He did so many futuristic looks that NASA asked him to do a spacesuit. But his boldest work beyond fashion was probably as a businessman. Until Pierre Cardin, haute couture was for haute society, the super rich. But he did ready to wear for a French department store, scandalizing everybody. It was the Printemps uh, department store. And all his other fashion designers kicked him out of their guild and said that's so disgusting and tacky and horrible. And how much money did you make? Yeah, they, <laughs> and then they, they all they all basically shunned him. He was oh yeah he was on the outs, and he said, "Look, you know they were copying my stuff anyway." And I said, "Look, if you're gonna do it, do it right here. Here's how you do this. You just do this. You do that, and then there you go. And I'll and, sell it to you. Gosh, don't don't copy it if you're not gonna get it right." <laughs> and uh, and then he said, "You're gonna pay me how much? I'll do it again. I'll do it again." Was, and then everybody else went, "What? What the?" He was yeah. the king of licensing, too. He slapped his name on everything, not just the initials PC, but his full name. You know, like people have purses and shoes and belt uh, everywhere. He was the first one to really do that in fashion. He was the first to market in China and the Soviet Union. He did a runway show in the Red Square that drew a crowd of 200,000. He was born an artiste but died a businessman. Uh, he was buried in a coffin he designed himself. You can probably buy it for yourself. Wait a second. He's already been buried. Well, I guess he has already been buried, right? Yeah, it's two weeks. Well, they yeah. talked about being buried in a coffin that he designed himself. I assume they don't wait usually that long to put you in the ground. Yeah. Well, he wears it well. <laughs> John Fletcher. Do you know who he is? Probably not. What about the rap group Houdini? Do you remember them? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. They were a big group. John Fletcher died at the age of 56. He was the lead visual focus of the band. Uh, and they're not as iconic as other rap groups, but they were right up there at the time with hits like Freaks Come Out at Night and Magic Wand. Uh, his nickname was Ecstasy. Uh, and you just know we're in the modern era because Questlove broke the news on Twitter. Uh, and when you see the love that they had for him and the, and the and support they gave, he sported a Zorro hat. Yeah, if you ever saw any Houdini videos, you might remember that. Nelson George said they had the first rap album to be embraced by black radio. So that's how early on they were. Chuck D of Public Enemy said Dougie Fresh and Ecstasy, a.k.a. John Fletcher, were the two MCs who mentored and counseled him early on. Uh, you know, they had friends attracted as probably one of the most sampled rap tracks of all time per variety. So they were a key early group in, in hip hop music for sure. Well, and I see that you have, uh, you know, the co-creator of Columbo and Ellery Queen down as William Link, of course. Oh, you know who uh, he is, right? You watched Ellery yeah. Queen. You watched Columbo. Yeah. yeah. Well, Columbo, yeah. He's forever linked to Richard Levinson. They met when they were kids. They were 14 years old. And just like John and Paul started writing songs, these two kids sat in their bedroom writing stories, scripts, radio plays. <laughs> it worked. They did groundbreaking and popular work. They did Mannix. Ten of Fly, which one is the first TV shows with a person of color as their lead. Ellery Queen, a lot of good TV movies. I remember The Execution of Private Slovak. 
a story of interracial friendship called My Sweet Charlie that won a writing Emmy. And that certain summer back in 1972 was one of the first TV works to deal sympathetically with, with what at the time was called homosexuality. But we saved the best for last. They also did Columbo, which won a writing Emmy as well, and Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> That's a lot of money. Angela Lansbury never won an Emmy for Murder, She Wrote, so they all had to just settle for being a big, fat hit. Speaking of big, fat hits, you know take what was five. a big, fat Yeah, Jazz, yeah, Take Five, the album <laughs> Take Five. Yeah, the bassist on that, Eugene Wright, he, uh, he died at 97. Yeah, you know, we talk about transitioning from the silent era to talkies. Going from the big band era to bebop, I think that's a similar leap, and he made it with ease. His nickname was The Senator. He played with everyone from Count Basie and Billy Holiday to Charlie Parker and on. But he's best remembered as the last surviving member of the Dave Brubeck Quartet, one of the most successful and acclaimed groups in jazz history. He recorded 30 albums with them over a decade, including classic songs like Blue Rondo a la Turk and, of course, Take Five. He integrated the quartet, and a lot of venues refused to host a band with black and white members on stage. This is years after Benny Goodman did it as well. It was still a battle in the 1950s into the 60s. Dave Brubeck simply refused to play anywhere that wouldn't have him, and finally, the resistance ended. A hit certainly helps. Now, Sperling, tell me, are you a Ginger or a Marianne kind of guy? I was more Marianne, to be honest. And if what? you don't know what we're talking to, just sit right back. It's been a tale for you. It's a tale. It's a tale of a fateful trip, really. That's right. How long did it last? Uh, three hours. Yeah, about three just hours. about. We're talking about Gilligan's Island and Dawn Wells, the actress who played the girl next door, Marianne, as opposed to Ginger, the movie star. Uh, she died at age of eighty-two from COVID, sadly, sadly. But she was known now and forever as the wholesome gal. That silly show only lasted three years, but, you know, reruns, spinoffs, TV movies, animated versions, a lifetime of instant recognition of all of them. She wore it the best, I think. She was very gracious and fun and always embraced the fact that she was part of something that lasted forever. So good for her. She was also Miss Nevada in 1959 and appeared on hundreds of TV shows and movies. She was even on Broadway, but Gilligan's Island is where it's at. You know what? <laughs> if it happens, you should be happy, right? Uh, yeah. Now, I don't know. I mean, we have a lot of people on that. What happened? I don't know. Well, it's, it's the holidays. Jerry Marsden of Jerry and the Pacemakers. He died at 78. At one point, they were bigger than the Beatles. You know, they were rivals to the Beatles. They were the second act signed by Brian Epstein. George Martin told the Beatles, look, I got a, this great song for you. It's called How Do You Do It? And like, no, we're doing our own music, our own music. They wanted their first song to be something they wrote, and they did. It was Love Me Do. It went to number 17. Well, George turned around and gave How Do You Do It to Jerry and the Pacemakers. They went to number one. <laughs> that scared the Beatles a little bit, but not for long. But Jerry and the Pacemakers went on to record Ferry Cross the Mercy, Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying, and the Rodgers and Hammerstein tune You'll Never Walk Alone from Carousel, which became the theme song for Liverpool Football Club and then the go-to song for national tragedies in the UK starting in the 1980s. He did TV work, he did solo stuff, but basically... He reformed the band and toured throughout his life. And you know what? For a brief, shiny moment, they were the biggest band in the world. Well, Jerry, uh, Jerry Berlin, uh, Roger Berlin, he died at 90, and he has uh, produced some of the biggest shows in the world on Broadway. 25 Tonys he won. That's practically a record for producing or co-producing more than 100 plays and musicals. His first show and first flop was Rex in the 1970s to the dark Tony winning revival of Oklahoma just two years ago. 
pretty amazing. He wasn't a showman. He doesn't seem to be really creatively involved in the shows as such, kind of a money guy, but he had a passion for the stage. Uh, Amadeus, a revival of Guys and Dolls, the first production of Tom Stoppard's The Real Thing, Proof and Doubt. But what's fascinating here and why I wanted to mention him was his life. His life was cleaved in two by tragedy. He was married, he had four kids, and he worked on Wall Street. And then a plane crash took his wife and three of his children. And within days, he's like, why am I on Wall Street? I'm not happy. What's the point? And he quit. And within a year, he was following his passion and working on Broadway. So don't let tragedy be the thing that makes you have to do that. Start a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, you can join, uh, you know, the likes of us or Raul Burrell. <laughs> uh, now, a uh, dancer and choreographer, Shabadoo. He died at the age of 65. He's the founding member of an L.A. dance troupe, The Lockers. Uh, and by the way, that that uh, Fred Berry, I believe, was a part of that. And remember Tony Basil, remember Mickey? Oh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so oh, fine. Yeah. And she was a big choreographer. She did a lot of work. But Fred Berry from What's Happening, he'd walk in the room and go, hey, hey, hey. Right. <laughs> and it was the 70s. Everybody would go, oh, and they'd clap and applaud. All those secondary characters had to get a big entrance. But yeah, Shabadu was part of that group. He danced on Soul Train on Saturday Night Live. Then he performed in Breakin' and its hip-hop sequel, Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, one of the great sequel names of all time. He was dubbed hip-hop's first matinee idol. He danced or choreographed with Frank Sinatra, Bette Midler, 3-6 Mafia, and full credit, Madonna. He choreographed two videos, a couple videos, and was on her Who's That Girl tour. So he died at the age of 65. So did Barry Lopez the author of a lot of great works on nature and science. He died at the age of 75. He had a long bout with prostate cancer. Get tested, everybody. I'm looking at you, Sperling. His most famous work is Arctic Dreams, which won the National Book Award. It's a celebration of the Arctic, which he wrote after spending five years traveling it. Who knew he would be describing a vanishing place? And my New Year's resolution is to read Arctic Dreams because I've always had it on the shelf and I've never read it. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that book, and I might listen to Luis Miguel's Romances, which is a blockbuster Spanish album. I've never listened to it, but I've read about it for many years. It came out in 1997 and helped revive popularity in a certain perhaps schmaltzy style of, uh, of songwriting and singing that was popularized in part by Mexican balladeer Armando Manzanero. He died at the age of 85. He wrote more than 400 songs. Maybe he died at the age of 86. No one knows. He used to say, a year more, a year less. It doesn't make a difference. He was a hopeless romantic, married five times, best known for easy listening ballads and hits covered by everyone. Perry Como, Christina Aguilera, Elvis, you name it. And he had songs like It's Impossible, you know, that Perry Como song. Wrote a lot of songs, kind of schmaltzy, but he won a Lifetime Grammy Achievement Award, and that's not so bad. Now, I know you know the next guy. If you don't know him, you know his work. Casting director Mike Fenton died at 85. Hugely important in the casting world, isn't he? Tell, you know what? Hey, let's play a game. You name a movie, and I'll tell you whether he cast it or not. <laughs> right, you might as well. More, more importantly, he helped cast found, it. He cast it. <laughs> he helped found the Casting Society of America and was one of its presidents over the years. Uh, casting people were the, one of the last groups to not have their own union for people that worked on film. Why not? Well, it's probably no coincidence. A lot of casting directors are women and gay people. And so they got no respect. They didn't have a union. It took a big fight for years. He said, we need our own union. And he made it happen. And he began in TV on the Andy Griffith show and I spy and stuff like that. He did. Look at these films, American Graffiti. That movie is made by its casting. Young Frankenstein, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That made a lot of its cast. You know what? Speaking of Harrison Ford mm -hmm. and, and American Graffiti, 
Uh-huh. Think about all of the stars that he found. Oh yeah, for American Graffiti, the it's, future stars that yeah, were in that movie. Absolutely, and he did uncredited work on the Sugarland Express, which is a Spielberg film that led to him casting a lot of the Indiana Jones movies. Yeah, Chinatown, The Godfather Part Two, Young Frankenstein. But it's the movies like American Graffiti, which I would include One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The Bad News Bears, Breaking Away. That movie is made by its casting. It's a delightful film if you haven't seen it. Uh, the Long Riders, well, he had one idea. He said, hey, let's cast brothers. <laughs> you know that Western with Walter Hill? He yeah. said, let's yeah. get an E.T. Great child casting. Great casting. Everybody in that movie had a pretty good career. Blade Runner, uh, All the Right Moves, an early film for Tom Cruise, an important early film for him. A Christmas Story, Footloose, The Goonies. Again, great cast. Back to the Future. Maybe one of his missteps because they put Eric Stoltz in the lead role. The Muppet Christmas Carol. All right. Not so much work there, right? He said, uh, how about we get Michael Caine? Done. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's the Muppets and Michael Caine. But, you know, he worked right up to the end. Sharknado 2. <laughs> That's one okay, of his last credits. The world. Yeah, okay. Yeah, everybody's got to work. I don't know if you know 80s lady KT Oslin. She's a country crown breaker. She died at the age of 78 fighting Parkinson's and a diagnosis of COVID-19, though it's unclear what led to her death. But check out our notes. We've got a great link to her. She worked in folk scene. She worked in theater. And then out of nowhere, she became a country star as KT Austin. Her debut was a blockbuster. She had a couple others after that. Number one hits, top 10 hits, top 40 hits. She was the first woman to ever win the Country Music Award for Best Song the first woman ever she also won grammys and had lots of hits she won album of the year from the cmas eventually then her third album didn't do so great and being an adult a woman who was in her 40s when success finally came she wasn't that ruffled she segued into small acting roles she didn't you know sadly chase a hit or try and change with the times she was who she was she had some great songs and a couple great albums and you know she recorded other albums over the years but she wasn't desperate about it and that's you know it befits an adult like her so she's definitely an 80s lady you should check out well and yeah i look i, I don't know are we really gonna review go through all like Lee we've Brewer only got friends? four we've only got four more Oh my God. You can do it. Lee Brewer. Oh my God. I, I wept. He just died today. He died at the age of 83. He co founded Mabu Mines, a legendary New York avant garde theater company. He co founded it with Philip Glass, one of my favorite composers, the great director, Joanne Acolytus. They founded it in 1970. Uh, 50 years later, it's still going strong. Two towering works stick in my mind. Peter and Wendy, which told the oh, story yeah. of Jay and Barry combining humans and Bunraku puppetry from Japan. It's such a great work. And then they did The Gospel at Colonus, which is one of my favorite works of theater of all time. And I only saw it like 30, 40 years after it came out. That's a great show with a great cast. Morgan Freeman got a big bump from that. Luger in? Was Rebecca Luger She was not, but she's a big Robbie star. This is very sad. She died at the age of 59. She's been battling ALS, a.k.a. Lou Gehrig's disease. Her husband is Danny Burstein, who should be on Broadway in Moulin Rouge, but we're all shut down right now. Neither of them has won a Tony yet, though he might for Moulin Rouge. It seems possible, and she probably would have. She started in Phantom as a replacement. Big role in The Secret Garden, but then she got a big break playing Magnolia and a big, lavish revival of Showboat that I saw. She was Maria in The Sound of Music, Mary in The Librarian and The Music Man, The Mom and Mary Poppins. She got multiple Tony nominees, born in Birmingham, Alabama. So God bless her. There you go. And finally, bluegrass legend Tony Rice. He died at the age of 69. If you never heard oh, no. of him, 
you're probably well, not a fan. Forever be linked to Ricky Skaggs. That's right. They were they performed together in the band New South. Ricky Skaggs raved about him. He calls him the single most influential acoustic guitar player in the last fifty years. I might mention Richard Thompson, but he is great. And Jason Isbell says, if you aren't familiar with his music, please look it up. I don't know if a person can make anything more beautiful. If you're going to start, try his album Manzanita. Uh, and he died on Christmas Day, which is kind of touching. So uh, sad to see. And also, let's not forget, poor went out for Adobe Flash. Adobe Flash died in 2020 as well. As did the independent rapper MF Doom. That's right. I knew so little about him. I had not really listened to his collaborations with Danger Mouse and other people. But very, you know, he's a UK rapper, one of the more successful ones, and he's certainly critically acclaimed. So you know, he had a he had a fascinating career. Always wore a mask, like a Marvel villain, and uh, you know, had a cool shtick. And he he was so private. We didn't even know he died two months ago. We didn't find out yeah. until December. So very cool to people who can maintain their privacy. I, I respect that very much so. And very cool for all of you to keep listening to our show all year long, no matter how long it is. We appreciate it. What can they do about that, Sperling? Well, you know, if you want to know when the next show uh, is going to drop as they say in the biz. Uh, you know what? Just subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, in fact. I think we have confirmed it's on Spotify. Right? It is. It is indeed. Yeah. Yes. Uh, links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com, as well as those ways to subscribe to us. And please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators. As Michael explained, it does help us out. When you do that, you know, you can also write to us dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on uh, Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle or facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our Facebook page. Again, all that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's please don't die this week.com. No, seriously, please don't, because no. then you know you'd be at the end of next week's show and yeah. Uh, but you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that website, why not head on over to michaelgilts.com, where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. two weeks of stuff that couldn't help it. There were a lot of obituaries. They deserve a little attention.